Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I literally finished, I don't know, a um, uh, 13, 14-hour driving day today. Uh, woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb. No, sorry, that's a song. Uh, woke up, not in a bed, woke up in, uh, the front seat of our SUV, uh, in the Walmart parking lot in Fort Collins and immediately proceeded to drive after, um, dealing with some necessities of life. And, um, uh, it's been a long day. And we drove from Fort Collins on weird mountain roads through sometimes not really cleared for two vehicles and um, in the darkness. Um, and I really hope that that thump um, was uh, just some uh, s- snowdrift and um, not, you know, some intern from the Aspen Institute or something. But uh, anyway, uh, it's great to be here. And I'm talking to you from Park City, Utah, where I'm holed up in a uh, house of a family, a member of my family. And uh, and we're doing this old school where I am just checking in with my aide-de-camp, uh, Nicholas Pompella. Hello, Nick. Hello, Jonah. Happy St. Patrick's Day as well. Thank you. Thank you. I actually, as I didn't point it out, I actually have Irish whiskey with me. Um, oh, Jesus. And, uh, um, and I... Should have had it in my IV, but, you know, such as it is, it's hard to travel with that because of the hole and the tubes and stuff. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, I would, now, Pompella, you're like, you're, you're of Italian descent, correct? Pompella is not an Irish name. Pompella is definitely not an Irish name, no. Um, but you have the, I, the mien of a, or the mean, how do you pronounce that, of an Irishman? Yeah, it's... Um, if you saw that Onion article about the Meghan Markle interview, where um, uh, in in the accusations of of racism within the wo- royal family and asking about the color of her baby's skin, the Onion headline was something like, um, "Royal family worried that Markle's baby won't have the pallid, deathly uh, <laughs> afterglow of a corpse." Um, that's sort of closer to my complexion. I don't really, I didn't really get much of the Italian, got most of the Irish. So, so, so one of your parents is of the, of the Italian sort. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Pretty much split down the middle. Uh, was, was, was one a uh, nurse and the other one a cop? Cause that's how it works in New York. It's, it's like the, the way Italians and Irish marry each other is traditionally the nurses or school teachers are Irish and the 
cops are Italian or I mean, or vice versa. Mm, and that's no? actually that's actually supremely interesting. Uh, the nurse thing matches for my mom, uh, but. But my 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 dad, as Ben Shapiro says, my dad is a doctor, um, but, but he's the Italian one, so he's breaking stereotypes there because uh, you're supposed to be too dumb to be the doctor if you're the Italian, I think. And um, so anyway, I just wanted to check this box about how we did have some Irish on this thing and not just the whiskey uh, because it seems a little, um, I don't know, in your face to also include. Um, Guy Denton, um, my intern, who's an Englishman uh, in London, which means he has not once fetched me coffees in this internship. Uh, but that has more to do with the pandemic and less to do with his willingness to perform servile menial tasks if called upon. Um, now, I want to, before Guy speaks, this is something that we've talked about a great deal. And I want to be very clear about this. I have yelled at him about this and asked him to change his upbringing and the way his brain is wired. I have warned when he had to talk to people at the dispatch, I had to warn, including Steve Hayes, I had to warn them in advance that it's a little disturbing because he sounds almost exactly like my former National Review colleague, Mark Stein. And um, not only does he... It's not so much. I would say he sounds very much like him, or he sounds exactly like him. If you had gone back in a time machine to meet the young Mark Stein when he was, I don't know, opening up, looking for the Ark of the Covenant, or hailing a cab and bumping into Michael Caine on the streets of London, or whatever it was, these weird stories that that Mark always used to have. Uh, if you wanted to cast that role, sort of the Benedict Cumberbatch of the young Mark Stein story. Um, it would be him, at least for the audio version. I don't know what his acting chops are. So, guys, say hello to everybody. And don't be self-conscious about this at all. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah, this is Mark Stein. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I, I, knew, I knew Mark Stein. I worked with Mark Stein. You were no Mark Stein. Um, and that, that, that cuts a lot of different ways. But uh, that's, a, that's a tale for another time. Um, guy, my understanding is that you actually want to be an American. Is that correct? Quite desperately, yes. Charlie Cook uh, would probably be the best reference point for everyone. But, you know, Charlie always said he would have been happy to stay in England. He does quite like England. I'm the complete opposite. Uh, I feel no attachment to this country whatsoever and have always desperately wanted to go across the Atlantic and never come back. So hence why I'm and with you, a, Jonah. I, so it's, 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 it, explain that a little bit. I mean, um like, are there issues at work here? I mean, show me on the doll. <laughs> show me on the doll where England touched you. I mean, what? what, I, what I, I'm so what? glad that you are asking this because I have wanted the Freudian answer to this question ever since Guy told me this, and I'm hoping there is one. I mean, do you, do you actively dislike your country? That um, gave birth to you and gave you meaning, and <laughs> you know, and, and and gives you a place. I mean, are are you the kind of person that uh, just says to their own mother, I hate you and I want nothing to do with you? I mean, what, what, what exactly causes you? I understand liking America. Who doesn't like America? But like, like would, would Roger Scruton spit in your face? I mean, what, what, what is the reason why you dislike England? Or, or you sound like you dislike England. Do you dislike England? Well, I, 
It's more that I, I would never make the argument that, of course, this is some awful, oppressive country or a horrible place to live. It's just that personally, I don't feel any attachment at all with any aspect of it, culture, politics, society, anything you can think of. I just never have. I don't know why. I'm sure there is some sort of Freudian reasoning for it. If you sat me on a couch, given an hour, you probably stumble across it. You, 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 said, you said about my mother, I love my mother. I love my parents. I just don't love the country I was, that they raised me in. Okay. All right. I mean, I, mean, I, I have to be a little careful about this because I'm talking about a friend of mine, but a friend of mine once had, was once telling me about how his, someone else, a mutual friend pointed out that he fervently believed that the U.S. military was hiding aliens in like various Air Force bases. And I was like, why do you believe this? And he's like, you just, you just know it's true. And over the course of me, sort of over poker, we were playing poker, sort of gently interrogating him about this, he revealed that his dad was in the military and he knows his dad knows about the aliens and won't tell him. And it became clear that this was about issues other than just the evidence of extraterrestrials being here on Earth. And I just find similarly that England is such a, I, I'm an Anglophile. I like England. I can see living in England. And, um, and so I, I find it strange that you just feel like a stranger in a strange land. Then again, did you ever read Peter Schramm's essay about, uh, born American, just in the wrong place. Yes, I have. Yeah, um, maybe that's you. That's great. It's just like he was born in Hungary, and like I get thinking I should be in America, <laughs> but like you weren't born someplace where they're lining people up against the wall to shoot them because they refused to work in the Nazis' factories. You just got served really greasy fish wrapped in newspaper. I mean, that's just not the same. Um, anyway, uh, and so how goes your struggle to come to the United States? Well, the greasy fish wrapped in newspaper is actually one of the few good things about being trapped here. You know, I, I mean, Charlie, while you were with Charlie at National Review, mm -hmm. wrote that wonderful essay for the 4th of July where he talks about the, um, the, the ineffable aspect of his love for the country. Why does he love American iconography and cultural institutions so much? He can't really say. He just does. Mm -hmm. For me, it's the same thing. I mean, I don't know if there's an... Anglophilic bent to the whole of the dispatch. I know David's an Anglophile too, but my um, <laughs> I've uh, I've tried my best to work toward immigrating, particularly over the last year. Uh, the pandemic isn't exactly conducive to that, but I've been able to carve things out, as evidenced by working with you now. Would you settle for Canada? Oh, not no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be worse. That would be like. Uh... Well, I mean, just, I'm just trying to calibrate it all. I mean, I look. I mean, I admire it. I think America is a lovely and lovable country, and 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 it's it speaks well of it. It attracts people such as yourself. But I also think that's true of England. And so, like, if you told me, like, if you told me you just hate the weather. I get it. Or if you told me that the kind of stuff that you want to do for a living, you can't do in England, I'd get it. But just like the get me out of this place aspect of your anti-Englishness is just, it's very strange to me. And 
Um, but we, I don't want to put you too much on the hot seat. Um, the thing is, like, normally we would do this at AI literally on a hot seat. And, um, but since you have to stay over there, uh, we can't do that. Um, okay, so Nick, I understand that you dropped um, what in, in the fishing industry is called a gill net to get right. questions for a sort of uh, ask me anything kind of thing. And I mentioned something about this on Twitter. So we're just going to do a, and you guys are free to ask questions that you want to ask or bring up topics or disagree with me about whatever. We're just going to kick this old school. Um, sure. But uh, um, was there a question that, that stood out more than any other or was asked more than it? Like, why am I driving cross country or, or what's wrong with me? Or um, why do you have a Mark Stein Man K chained to a desk in, in the UK? <laughs> Oh God! Well, no, no questions about that because no one is at the uh, only only us on these calls have had the pleasure to hear the similarity, and it and it's amazing when you mentioned that too because it 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 made so much just come together for me. I felt like I knew Guy for a very long time, uh, the first time I ever met him, and that was that was why. Um, no, I would say um, this does come through a lot, actually, particularly within the past year, at least. That that I have been working with you, um, and this is a this is a slight fascination of mine as well when it comes to this. But the the question does come through quite a bit and came through in a couple of emails as well. Do do you like the being trapped in a car in horrible weather conditions? <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm genuinely quite curious about this because the the trips. Uh, the trips that you take are very unique in the sense that I think most people have a have a, a destination in mind and they get on a plane and then they spend two weeks at that destination. Whereas your family has this sort of very, speaking of Americana, this incredible adventure spirit that seems to overtake every single trip you take out of D.C. And I'm wondering, because this is how I felt being in being in D.C., was there's something oppressive about the city of Washington, D.C., <laughs> and the spirit of adventure makes you want to do kind of manly things like get in a, in a truck and then go drive through the snow, which I gather is how it is out there in Colorado and Utah. It's just a massive snowstorm right now. Okay, so we need this to tease a- some of this out a little bit because I get asked mm-hmm. this a lot. Um, when I took my daughter on the trip to Austin, we flew. And we did not right. want Mr. Coldmiser to treat me like, you know, the new accountant in the maximum security prison. Um, and uh, it was not what we were looking for. It was not what we planned. Uh, we just got screwed. And um, similarly, our plan on this trip was to get to Yosemite, or as I call it, when I want to sound like John Padore, it's greeting a friend, Yosemite. Um, uh, we, uh, uh, we did not plan on this, again, meteorological craziness to emerge out of nowhere and close off I-80, um, which is a major road thing of a Bob thing, not to get too technical. So uh, that said, um, Yes, we like to drive cross country. Um, mm-hmm. We've driven 
Um, I've driven either alone or with my wife uh, or with my daughter. Probably, if I did the math, I've probably driven around the world twice in the United States or close to it. Maybe not twice, right? So that's 20, that's 50,000 miles, right? So at least once, maybe one and a half times because I've driven out to San Juan Islands and back or at least one leg of it, I don't know, a dozen, 15 times, something like that. And we've done a lot of driving. We once drove from Fairbanks to Washington, D.C. Oh, um, my God. Which I, I often, uh, it was when my wife was pregnant with our daughter and we needed a second car and it was a year after we got married and our father-in-law, my father-in-law gave us his old beat up, uh, uh, Cadillac, two door Cadillac as it was like, it was like 10 years old as a belated kind of wedding present kind of thing. And we drove it with Cosmo, the wonder dog from Fairbanks to DC. And we came in at Montana and, because uh, we went through the Canadian Rockies, which were kind of wild, and went to Banff and then went down into Montana. And you know that feeling when you've been on a long road trip? I mean, Guy doesn't because he lives in England and he can't do a long road trip. But um, you know that feeling of like when you pull on your block after a long trip and you're like, ah, I'm home. You feel like you're, e- or even your driveway, you're sort of easing yeah. into like whatever. That's how we felt, felt crossing into Montana. Um, <laughs> it was just like, finally, we're home. This is like America's driveway. Um, so yeah, we like doing the long road trips. You get it into your bloodstream. But as I've often said, and I think you're partly right, I, I really still have no major love for Washington, D.C. I like my friends and I like my colleagues and, and, and my work and all that kind of stuff. But um, there's nothing about, for me, Washington, D.C. is... Um, it's, it's very much like, uh, you know, what my wife will often say about food that just tastes slightly wrong, not necessarily spoiled, but just like slightly wrong, that it tastes vaguely Canadian. Um, and DC is, is not quite a city experience as far as I'm concerned. And it's not quite a suburban experience. And it's sort of in the middle. And and, um, and that's partly because I grew up in New York city. Um, and it's partly because of where I live in DC, which is very sort of suburban, even though it's in the city. Um, but I think everybody who's even remotely in my line of work should drive across country. If not every year, then every couple of years, because it really is important to see how big this country is, how right. diverse it is, how it really isn't run by Washington, you know, to listen to Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow like everybody in America is waiting with bated breath to find out when they can go to the bathroom um, based upon what Congress does next. And for most people, that's just not how they live. I mean, it's not even how they live in Washington, D.C., but at least people in Washington, D.C. have convinced themselves that there are other people who live that way. And it's just a, it's a, you know, and not to sound like Guy, which I can't do without um, sounding like Mark, uh, I love this country. I love driving across it. And my wife and I, we sort of just, we've got it weirdly in our system. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling because so, it's been a long day. So, so Washington, D.C. to you is the entire United Kingdom to Guy. That's, I think that's right. Although, basically well, no, just indifferent. I like the history 
and the politics of Washington, D.C. I'm interested in this. It's what I do for a living. Guy, let's just keep talking about him as if he's not here. <laughs> Guy, like, it's like you turn on the TV and you just get the, the old the old TVs before you, you, you embryos were born. Um, you know, you just get static and snow. He looks at he looks back at the great and majestic history of, of of England, and it's just random snow and patterns and static. That's not how I feel about Washington D.C. I just, as an urban experience, I don't find it to be all that rewarding. Um, I think I think I, I, my so go ahead. I think my 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 predecessor will be will be uh will be wounded by this assessment of dc because he's been mounting in the pages of national review some very impassioned defenses of washington dc in the past couple of months the defense of uh weird wendy's which is going to be replaced with i believe an amazon office um of course his his love letter to dc as well and whatnot which yeah, is yeah, just yeah, something but I wish- it's an enormously well-established principle that has been widely discussed on this podcast and among its followers that Jack can be wrong. Um, <laughs> and, um, and you got to remember no Jack's, coming from, Jack's coming from suburban Ohio. So of course mm. he's like a wide eyed naif in the big city with the shiny lights and the horseless carriages. But um, having just spent a night two nights ago in, in the Cleve in Cleveland, if I could do everything that I do the way I do it and have the friendships that I have and all the rest, but live in Cleveland over DC, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Oh my God. Wow. That is truly scandalous. Wow. So that's amazing. Guy, I meant to ask before we move on, have you actually been to America or is this purely some sort of abstract thing like John Reed in the Soviet Union? Um, you know, are you, is there a danger that you come here and you're like, oh my God, I had no idea what I was in for? I have been to America, yes. <laughs> but only where where in America have you been to? Only only northeastern states. I was uh-huh. slated to come to DC last summer to do a fellowship program, but of course that was cruelly <laughs> destroyed and rendered virtual. Just like you Brits think major global events are all about you. But anyway. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it didn't affect anyone worse than B. Jonah, I have to say. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on to a, 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 another question, even though I didn't answer that one satisfactorily. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting thing was by – so when you put this out on Twitter, I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but the Twitter responses were mostly just people trolling you. It was like <laughs> Scott Lincecum asking, why do you park in a driveway and drive on a parkway? Yeah, because um, that was a really – funny question like 35 years ago Um, (laughs) right yeah right well someone responded uh i think i saw gallagher perform that joke um which is just a really great um a gallagher who i believe has gone crazy actually if anyone wants to look that up and have a really interesting the watermelon smashing comedian Uh, yeah he did an interview i I have a vague memory of this mark maron the the famous stand-up comedian on his Mm -hmm. podcast he had an episode with gallagher in which gallagher did he bring a poncho for maron (laughs) <laughs> that's right it's a little close quarters for the whole watermelon smashing gig but um he uh i i think mark Marin, it's funny to picture it too because mark Marin, i believe ran or maybe still runs his podcast out of his garage and apparently gallagher got so inflamed at him at one point that he walked out of his garage um 
which is just amazing to imagine a man sort of walking out of a garage in LA in like a clown Unless suit. Unless he was literally inflamed and then like running out to roll to put out the flames makes some sense. That would be um, very on brand, yes. But that was yeah. a meme for a while is because the last words of the podcast were Mark Marin going, come on, Gallagher, come on, uh, which is a great huh. thing to do a picture as well. Um, no, yeah, so anyway, um, in terms of other, most of the ones that came in by email, interestingly, were not really rank punditry oriented at all. They were mostly kind of cultural things questions about like movies. what happened to can you dig it <laughs> oh oh man I'm yeah sorry, that was i didn't nail that hold on can you <laughs> dig it <laughs> okay sorry <laughs> exactly exactly um uh, i guess we should actually answer that which is that we thought um with the uh, with the the our fearless leader on this podcast caleb who who uh, deserves more 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 credit in in the running of this show um he wanted to change things up a little bit based on the complaints of the demos um, from earlier episodes when we changed the intro. And of course, people got accustomed to this change. Uh, it's the ratchet effect, I guess. And um, now they like that. So we might bring yeah. the Can You Dig It Back because the so demos this, this, has- is, this raises, you know, again, as you guys know, in internet years, I'm a Methuselah. Um, right. And... I've gone through, I went through at NR, I don't know. This is probably an exaggeration, but like 7,000 website redesigns. <laughs> um, it was probably not even half that, but it felt like it. And um, every single, and, and, I, and not just me, but like every, every person I know has been involved in redesigns. Everybody I know who's changed things on the internet in a sort of managerial capacity, all the feedback, 99% of the feedback is negative. And then a year later, when you change it, the same people who are angry with you are angry with you again for changing it because they loved it. And so what we're asking you listeners is why are you this way? <laughs> yes. But, no, so, but here's the, here's the flip side problem. And this is a problem that I have, Psychologically, and, I, and I'm, I'm actually kind of serious about this, even though I sound like I'm, you know, covered in some sort of viscera. Um, uh, I have had this problem my entire time doing internet stuff in that I tend to entirely and grotesquely unfairly conflate all feedback as if it's coming from the same person. So I'll get email from a thousand different people and I'll be like, why are you being inconsistent when it's actually a thousand, well, probably not a thousand, but call it 750 consistent people who disagree with each other. But for me, I am like only receive, I, 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 my brain processes the feedback as if it's coming basically in one voice. And, and so it's entirely possible that, a big chunk of the people who hated the new intro to the podcast also don't give a rat's ass that we took out one of the greatest sound bites in, in Gen X uh, popular culture, um, which is Cyrus, uh, you know, explaining how there are only, you know, 12,000 cops in the whole damn town or whatever the number is. And I'm going to get grief from people because I got the number wrong. Um, 
So I want it back. Um, yeah. And I, I don't mean this as a criticism of you or even of Guy, although part of his role is to take it, even though it has, he has no culpability. Um, I do want the podcast to be weirder. Right. But it turns out that being weird, cons- being weird without being stupid is hard. Yeah. And, um, and so like the, another thing I know people keep bringing up is the sound effect when we mention Woodrow Wilson. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Which it uh, played right now. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully the, the gnomes have put it in there, um, which is the, correct me if I'm wrong. It's the Urukai sound effect from Lord of the Rings. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and that is because one of the fundamental dogmas of this podcast is that Woodrow Wilson is bad. And the only reasonable debates in polit- American political history and philosophy about Woodrow Wilson are which aspects of him you think are worse than the other aspects of him. <laughs> um, and um, so anyway... I would love for the intro to be even weirder. I would love for every week to be another pinata of pop culture gems that drop down on people. And like the first person who guesses what all of them are gets, you know, what Stan Lee would call a coveted no prize. But, uh, (laughs) um, but we are busy people. Caleb rules us with an iron fist and he took it out. And, Despite the fact I have left several bags of burning dog feces on his front door, he has not restored it to my knowledge. But um, right, anyway, but it also has to be said, Caleb is our dear and glorious leader who is not to be defamed and who can do no wrong, and also gets a hole in one on every eighteen holes of every golf course that he plays on. I, on my understanding, that he is he shoots a seventeen par on an eighteen par eighteen hole <laughs> golf, golf course. He I can see cook. It. I've seen him bake 12 minute brownies in seven minutes. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm filibustering. I am. I, I, I realize as the words come out of my pie hole, how tired I am. So let's move on. Any other questions? Yes, I will. I will just say specifically, um, we did get a question about the Urukai theme uh, oh. from George Macchio via email, which is encouraging because it means that there are, uh, there's actual churn of newness, l- new listenership who don't quite get the, the mimetic structures of the show, which is That's encouraging because right. it means that they're new. Um, I'm going to say we're going to get, I, we got a really long winding adventurous pop culture question by email that I think would actually be pretty interesting. I mean, there were some other ones that I think would be good to talk about such as, um, could Jonah walk us through his bookshelves? What is on them? What does he like the most? Um, things like that as well that were kind of shorter, very interesting. But there's one that's kind of this long, ambling question that I thought would be good. And then I think it would be best to move on to Guy's questions because with the with the abuse that he has faced throughout this internship, I think we owe it to him to ask a couple of his questions. Fair, um, fair. But we'll do this one because this one I think is this might set you off on an interesting tangent because it's it's just long and weird enough to be exactly in that remnant sweet spot. So this was from an anonymous emailer. He said, so, dot, 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 I watched Beastmaster the other day, oh. semicolon, 
I all love the best. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, Nick. All the best yeah. questions begin with that sentence. I watched <laughs> Beastmaster the other day. Right. Well, right. if you read we the original, you know, Socratic dialogues, it's you know, as as captured by Plato, that's true. So anyway, go on. <laughs> right. And then Timaeus says it was good or whatever he always says. <laughs> Um, he said, I watched Beastmaster the other day. I loved it. I was born in 1985. I like D&D and heavy metal. I work in tech. I work out. I plan on hunting boar now that I live in North Carolina. <laughs> then we have a rapid transition. I am not woke by any means. Then I watched Women in Cages, suggested by Prime after Beastmaster. It made me think of you joking about women's prisons movies. I Who's did some research... At? Um, I did some research on the genre. I didn't know anything about the black exploitation genre or the sexual exploitation genres, nor even at all about grindhouse cinema. Although I did see the feature film in like 2006 or something. Can you explain or talk about pulp movies from the seventies? Because eighties pulp seemed to be nothing more than lighthearted hot chicks, topless seventies pulp seemed super weird with lots of weird, okay, three times in a row, lots of weird, weird, all caps, weird BDSM stuff. I learned about Pam Greer being an icon, which I find super interesting. I also learned about the censorship. Uh, I wonder if we ever, uh, the censorship and the deregulation during the 60s. I don't know if that's true, if it was deregulated in the 60s. He said, but then he says, I wonder if we never would have gotten rid of those regulations if cinema would mostly still be upper class and if our culture would be better for it and then he has the best outro i've ever heard because it's a combination of a compliment with just an admission of how insane this question is he says this may be a shitty argument but i'm typing this on my phone in a parking lot smoking a cigarette sitting in my truck i think you can relate i have three friends who also listen to you all under 35 all in very blue washington state they love you i love your podcasts and the dispatch thank you and godspeed Okay, so, so there's a lot there. We have some level setting to do. Okay, so first of all, I think both of you can attest. I mean, there's a there's a, a guy from Cooper's and Librand standing behind Nick with uh, uh, a briefcase that he is manacled to. That I have not seen these questions. I just I want to bring this up because I did not write that question for myself. <laughs> Uh, nor did I know it was coming. Um, second, I was half expecting at some point for you to start saying around the black exploitation part, uh, start reading from it with him saying, nurse, nurse, I'm not done with my email yet. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we can leave that aside. Um, so First of all, oh gosh, where to begin on this? Okay. A, love Beastmaster. Yeah. Love Beastmaster. Um, I, cannot, I cannot vouch for the sequels of mm. Beastmaster. Um, I'm not saying I haven't seen them. I am just saying that I cannot defend them in the same way I can defend the original. Um, because the original spoke to me um and at a certain age it's sort of like you know they say the golden age of science fiction is 16 uh right yeah so the golden age of beastmaster is when 
Jonah Goldberg was 13 years old. And uh, as a fan of charismatic megafauna um, and whatnot, uh, uh, really love these That said, it's not a 1970s movie. I believe it comes out in 82 or 83. I believe you're correct. I think it was 82. Yeah. Okay. So um, it also stars, I believe his name is Mark Singer, who was mm-hmm. vaguely Canadian. And, um, and he was in another movie that I basically only remember because of the title. And it was the first movie about a blind person I'd ever seen that didn't involve Richard Pryor called if you could see what I hear. And, uh, and he had a romantic interest, I believe with Sherry Belafonte and who was also for a man of a certain or a pre-man of a certain age, uh, was fairly compelling. And she, <laughs> and there's this great scene where Mark Singer is blind and they've just had uh, relations and she reveals that she's black and there's sort of almost a um, Dave Chappelle kind of like, oh my God, you're telling me you're black kind of thing. And and I, I thought it was very funny and clever. Again, I was, I don't know, somewhere between 11 and 14. Um women's prison movies um i don't if there are black exploitation ones involved i'm not a fan of them and i have not seen them and i want to make that very clear <laughs> right. uh the attractions of a 13 year old boy named jonah goldberg from never was in manhattan to women's prison movies had nothing to do with structural racism right um i just want to make that also clear um, um, but I do think that while everyone gives Linda Blair all this credit for her role in, uh, the exorcist, they don't give her enough credit for her role in, and I might, I, I really hope I don't screw this up, uh, caged heat. Cause I sometimes get it confused with chained heat, totally different movies. Um, so anyway, that all said, um, I'm going to rely on you here, Nick. Was there an actual question in that? Um, I, I think there's kind of a, um, how do I make this? I'm going back to my college days. There's kind of a bipartite structure embedded within the the paragraph here. There's, there's two. There's two, okay. I would say. Um, I guess the first one would be, do you think that there's a perceptible difference between 70s and 80s pulp does the aesthetic there change and his point is that 80s seems a lot more lighthearted. it's like hot topless chicks Uh but then 70s has this bizarre as he kind of says a weird kind of bdsm and it is it it is true based on like uh, the movies that i'm thinking of the 70s have this kind of dark thing in those pulpy b movies that i think disappears around the eighties. Is that, is that true though? I, 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 I think that's largely right. And it's a good topic for the Glop podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I think my immediate gut instinct is that it has to do in part with changes in technology where in the 1970s you have all of these serious directors and all of these crappy directors all of a sudden able to do all sorts of things that they once weren't able to do, including make movies that get around the studio system in ways 
that even in the 60s were kind of hard. And so you get, you know, at the high end, you get things like Taxi Driver, you get things like um, uh, Midnight Cowboy, what, which was a dark and creepy friggin' movie. Um, and, um, and you also get like the black exploitation movies, uh, just not to get too deep into all of that, but, um, which I, I have to admit, you know, I didn't kind of, I, I didn't like that much, although I did love the Simpsons riff about where they were saying after it was something like after Blackula and, <laughs> uh, and Blackula two, and then black something else. It's going to be the blunch black of bloated blame uh, or something like that. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, uh, and so I think that like, if you look at the, the Sam Pack, Sam Peckinpah movies, if you look mm. at like um, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, um, they're all of these movies that in the seventies, I don't know if you call them all exploitation movies, but there's a reason why Quentin Tarantino loves to play on that stuff. It's because yeah. he grew up with that. I mean, so like the old drive-in double feature kind of thing, there were things that you could do in the seventies that both because of the, uh, the color cinematographer getting cheaper um, and the studio system breaking down even more that allowed people to be weirdly edgy. And then the market kind of consolidated. And so, um, you know, what was it? Kroll the Conqueror and these kinds of movies was really just topless chicks um, and swords and sandals and, and that kind of stuff. And you're And there was a more campy thing about right. it because they could get away with it. So I think there's something there for sure. sure. Um, uh, the, the other part of the question you kind of answered, which is, which is essentially did the, it's a, a kind of a variation on the classic question about American film is did the regulations make films ultimately better in that people had to come up with these creative workarounds. I think probably in the B movie spectrum, as you just said, that's probably true because the B movies, if you're, if you're lowering the floor for what's allowed to be shown on screen, it probably means that the exploitative directors are going to do weirder stuff, but it's probably not. You probably wouldn't have better movies. I would think if those regulations still existed, right? I mean, I don't know. I think everything on streaming basically ceases to exist at that point. I would imagine at least, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the generic or the general proposition that constraints yield greater creativity is objectively true. Mm-hmm. Um, and if everything is permitted, it's just difficult to get a purchase on and I don't just mean in terms of regulation or or industry standards. I mean also in terms of the audience. If everything is permitted and there are no taboos and there are no expectations and there are no um, conventions, then everything. Why not just make everything violent porn, right? It, right. The uh, even even a completely libertarian cultural market conventions and norms develop in ways that create interesting things for directors to play on. Uh, what Stanley Kubrick, one of the most genius things about uh, The Shining is that almost every single shot that you expect to happen, he goes the other way. Like you're supposed to be surprised by um, him being up close and instead Kubrick goes way back. Um, maybe the best example of this in some ways is 
um, um, the shark in Jaws. The shark didn't work, just right. literally didn't work for like 80% of the movie. And so the story is, is that Scorsese advised Spielberg, turn the camera around and make it from the shark's point of view, look at the legs dangling down and all that kind of stuff and freak people out. And then you'll have a big reveal later after you seduce them all in. I think that's true. I mean, or one of the greatest moments in American cinema, um, if Winger and the other guys from Stripes had actually practiced everything as Sergeant Holka wanted, the big sort of parade day graduation ceremony where they do boom chakalaka like a boom chakalaka wouldn't be necessary. But it's only because right. they had to on the fly create something interesting that violated conventions um, uh, that it made it entertaining. And so I, that said, you can go too far with all that kind of stuff. Um, um, and as Rousseau pointed out, you can only preserve, censorship is only useful for preserving morals, not for restoring them. So right. uh, I'm not saying that we should now have some sort of Hollywood code that says, um, you know, Lucy and Ricky have to sleep in separate single beds the way they did in I Love Lucy. Okay, so Guy, you have questions. And we should note for the listeners, uh, the way I met Guy, virtually speaking, is he interviewed me for some YouTube channel that I'm sure is huge in Britain. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll put it in the show notes. And then he followed up and asked if, he, if there were any internships available at AI. And, um, you know, and he, he, he put a little, you know, a little something extra in the envelope. And here we are. So, uh, <laughs> Guy, you, apparently Guy has questions. Everyone is going to use that strategy now, Jonah. You shouldn't have given it away. <laughs> Incentives matter. Incentives mm -hmm. matter. You know, I heard while we were doing prep for this, I came up with a couple of nerdy, dry political questions that I actually didn't get to ask you when we uh, did that recording, and it was still on my mind. But hearing you say that you would much rather talk about pop culture because you're exhausted, I am happy to no, abide. no, we, we can do. We can do. I didn't. I did not say that. I just no, no. Uh, I mean, I mean it in a positive way because one of right. the, something I've always wanted to ask you since I first started listening when I was young and even more dashingly handsome than I am now. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> when I first heard you talk about Wolfram and Hart and the Shanshu prophecy, what's yes. your favorite season of Angel, Jonah? Do you think Angel is better than Buffy? Interesting. Uh, I think that's, it's a difficult question because, uh, one, I haven't thought about it, but two, um, because you always have to give a bump up letter grade in the thing that establishes the franchise over the thing that is derivative of it. Um, so even though Empire Strikes Back, I think is objectively a better movie than Star Wars, um, you still have to grade Star Wars better than Empire and certain sort of historical norm creating things because it came first and made Empire possible. Empire is a really weird movie if Star Wars never came out, just to put it in hmm. blunt terms. Um, so the world building comes from, from Buffy. I think the last couple seasons of Buffy were really, really, really good. And the first couple seasons of Angel weren't. Um, as they were trying to figure it out, there was a certain amount of, um, uh, there was a terrible attempt to re to turn, to make a TV show out of the name Friday the 13th 
And it was basically like a warehouse full of cursed things that people tried to get back. And the original couple seasons of Angel felt a little bit like that to me. Um, but I think it really started to hit its groove with the, um, oh gosh, what's her name? Um, the goddess. Uh, Thread? No, no, I love Fred. I mean, I have, I have very strong feelings about Fred. No, the goddess who was the who's also in, um, Sir, in Firefly or in Serenity, uh, in Fry, Firefly. Oh, the, Jasmine. Jasmine. I thought that storyline was really good. I think the thing with Skip the Demon was really good. The way they built that character arc. I mean, that's one of the things I think that that people don't really appreciate about both Buffy and and Angel is that this transformation that we get in why the best television in the last 10 years, 15 years really was sort of made for streaming is because people like Whedon and Steve Bochco and these people figured out that you could, even before such things as streaming existed, you could buy enough goodwill from the audience to have story arcs that stretch over an entire season in ways that didn't exist when I was a little kid, like for an episode of a TV show to be continued to next week um, was really rare. Everything was sort of a standalone. And, um, and usually the to be continued stuff was the cliffhanger for the next season. And that's about it. And starting with like Hill street blues and NYPD blue. And I have to say angel and Buffy were really big parts of this. Like, as the market broke up, people realized that you could actually own an audience by having a storyline that go for a very long time. And the, the, the best example of this were really um, uh, Breaking Bad and The Wire, um, but they benefited from the fact that they were on HBO and, and The Sopranos, and you could catch up with them. Like if you missed it, like when I was a kid, if you missed an episode of Happy Days, you had to wait like six freaking months to get a chance to see it again because we didn't have VCRs, you know? I mean, yeah, we had sort of, you know, interns who would like try to draw comics of as, as it was happening, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't what you wanted. Um, and I think that that was a big part of the sort of transformation of TV where now TV is better than movies at, at telling novelistic stories. Um, so anyway, that's my free association to that question. What else? What else do you got for me? Oh, and I should also say that the, that whenever I bring up blood magic on this podcast and elsewhere, it is a direct reference to um, the Jasmine plot line from angel. Cause there's this wonderful scene where this alien from, from the last planet that Jasmine exploded uh, some sort of crab leg, weird thing. And um, he's ridiculing the humans for, um, for their word magic and, you know, this really stupid word magic. Um, you, what, where, where it's really happening is blood magic. And he's just like doing weird things with the viscera of a vampire um, to create blood magic. And it's, it's stuck with me. So anyway, what else, what else you got? Hearing you talking about Kubrick a second ago, put this in my head, and I know what's your favorite is about the most vacuous question you can ask about anything. But do you have a favorite Kubrick film? Oh, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble with a lot of people about this. Um, I think Eyes Wide Shut is garbage. I think. Oh, 
Oh, you broke my heart. I think uh, I think Full Metal Jacket is a really good movie in the first half. It's kind of like the deadly serious version of Stripes, where both movies kind of go off a cliff halfway in. Um, doesn't mean every scene in the second half of either is bad, but they're just not nearly as good movies in the second half. Um, I would have to say, and I, I've got to tell you, and I, I, I am the first one to concede this has to do with the fact that I have a shortened attention span um, for all sorts of modern, understandable reasons. I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is incredibly slow. I mean, I would almost rather watch the wedding scene in The Deer Hunter, than, which is almost <laughs> as long as, as that whole movie. Um, um, what else? I, I, I guess I have to... I don't like horror movies very much because I don't like that feeling. of I, I, I don't find it enjoyable. Like my daughter and my wife love watching movies that scare the crap out of them. That's not me. Um, but it'd have to be in terms of, I think, his best movies, The Shining or Dr. Strangelove. But I can watch Dr. Strangelove over and over again. I don't like on a Sunday afternoon when like, I have the house to myself. Oh, yay, The Shining is on. That's just not how I roll. Um, but I will watch Dr. Strangelove. So. But I think he's among the most over... Oh, Past the Glory is a wonderful movie. I will, I will say that. Um, one of his oldest movies. Um, not a feel-good movie, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, who says, oh my gosh, yay, Schindler's List is on, let's watch it again, right? There's just some movies that you watch once because you feel like you need to watch it, sort of like The Joker, and then you're like, I didn't, I'm glad I watched that, but I did not enjoy watching it, and I shall not watch it again. And that's sort of how I feel about Path to Glory. Um, anyway, uh, did I leave anything out? On, on Cooper? Um, AI. <laughs> That's the only oh. So I didn't, I didn't leave anything out, is what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, people, people will get angry in the comments if we don't mention this. A Clockwork Orange you left out. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yet another one of those uh, don't need to watch it again. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, he specializes in that because the other one that we're also forgetting, which is like, and a scare quotes important movie that you only want to watch once was his adaptation of Lolita. Yet another horribly discomforting film that you should I think probably, right. yeah, you should probably yeah. only watch uh, if you're in the mood to 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 have your world destroyed. Kind yeah, of. I've never. I Which, will. I will say this. I've never seen that, and I have no burning desire to remedy that right. situation. It, it it's funny too because it makes you realize the brilliance of um. I, I always think of how how it shows weirdly the brilliance of Christopher Nolan, right? Because you think of The Dark Knight, the the movie in which Heath Ledger's Joker is in, and you think of that actually compared to the Joaquin Phoenix Joker and 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 even a lot of other great filmmakers like the Kubrick movies or, or these, you know, pretentious ones, The Seventh Seal or whatever, these, you know, important films. You hardly ever want to watch them again. And it's right. funny because I think about that Dark Knight movie and even Batman Begins, the, the first one of the Nolan trilogy. Man, you, they're just fun too. Like they're they're, they, 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 they're sort of important films, but they're also very fun, which is yeah. incredibly difficult. So uh, it's funny you mentioned this. So there's this weird phenomenon. I think I've talked about it on here before about how there's this weird 
convergence when Hollywood ends up putting out basically the same movie twice. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, and it's, it's, it's like, I think Rob Long has explained it. It's like word gets out that Paramount is doing an asteroid movie. So we got to do an asteroid movie. And so then you end up getting, um, you know, deep impact and Armageddon almost back to back. And you're like, really another asteroid movie, that kind of thing. The other day I finally watched not the whole thing, uh, but a big chunk of it. The other Truman Capote movie about in cold blood, um, which actually has a much better cast than, um, the Capote one that won all the Oscars. What's his name? Um, uh, guy from the guy who died from heroin overdose, Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? Oh, Philip Seymour, yeah, yeah. So Hoffman's one comes out first. He friggin' chews up the scenery like Godzilla through Tokyo, defines the role, right? Just owns the role. And then this other movie, which clearly was not derivative because they were probably both in production at the same time, has like I don't know Sigourney Weaver, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jeff Daniels. All these people and some actor who you've seen a zillion times but isn't famous playing Capote. And you're just watching this and you're, you got to feel so bad for the guy who played Capote because I think his name Paul Smith, Paul. So I looked it up. Like he's a journeyman actor and he did a perfectly fine job. And if the, if the Philip Seymour Mahoppa movie had never come out, this might have been a really big movie. But instead, everyone's like, one, I don't want to see this story again. Two, Philip Seymour Hoffman got an Oscar and this guy is just going to look bad as a result, but you got to feel bad for the guy. Cause he was probably throughout production telling all his friends and family, I'm in a movie with all of these famous actors and it's like this amazing story. And we've got like this unlimited budget to tell this amazing story in this, in this great, great, incredible way. And like, what's it say? Daniel Craig is like one of the murderers from it. You know I mean? It's like, got oh. all this amazing cast and it just sinks to the bottom of the ocean without a ripple. Um, and I f- just feel so bad for everybody who was involved in it. And I, I, and honestly, I cannot tell you whether it was a good movie or not, because you cannot watch it without just measuring it against the Philip Seymour Hoffman one. And that's, that's partly how I felt about the Joker thing is that he, Joaquin Phoenix understood that he was going to be constantly compared to a dead guy who got an Oscar post-mortem. Right. And so he had to go completely a different way. And I think Phoenix is a fantastic actor. So um, I think what he did with it was great. It's just that the movie felt like some turgid mid-century Swedish melodrama that made me want to open a vein. And um, I hated it for that regard. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I, we should wrap this up soon because my, my, my lovely wife and daughter, I can hear they're back from the store and um, they're going to start looking at me askance. So, uh, but give me, uh, let's do it. Try to do it as I will try to help you help me here. Um, let's try to do this as a lightning round kind of thing. What else you got for me? Um, British kid. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So (laughs) it literally says guy on my screen. I was just trying to like, anyway, go on. So, uh, what else? Okay, you, what else you got for me, British kid? Could be a standalone <laughs> podcast that you and I do. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know about a lightning round because none of the ones the readers submitted are short. None of the ones I came up with are short. But I suppose one. 
since we've been talking about not only democracy, but also anglophobia and <laughs> anglophilia, uh, a, a listener by the name of Seth Higgins sent in quite an interesting question. He says, one of my half-baked ideas, I think at least one U.S. state should adopt the parliamentary systems at state government. Jonah often makes the point that many U.S. citizens seem to believe they'd rather live under a parliamentary system than our current system. I agree, and I think U.S. citizens should get a cl- up-close and personal look at how such a system would play out in the U.S. At least one state should adopt such a system as an example. Hell, maybe it would go great. Either way, it would be an adventure. Aside from the fact it would never happen, <laughs> um, I think it's a great idea. Um, I think the parliamentary system is worse than our system. But our system is worse than the parliamentary system when people want to run it like it's a parliamentary system when it is, in fact, not. Um, you know, I, uh, I prefer tigers to horses, but if you treat a tiger like a horse, it's going to end very badly. Um, you know, you need to have things, the, the form and the function fit the, the role. So I think it would be a great idea to see how it would go. Not so much because I think it would be a, a teaching moment for how to run the entire country, but just to explain to people why that's not that. Just to explain to people that, that there are differences between the two, between the two systems. Is all. So, does that make sense? I think perfectly so. Um, yeah. I, I have a couple that could function as a lightning round here. These these sprang from my head like like Zeus's children. Uh, but they could be split into a couple of questions pretty easily here. So uh, do you want to do that? Want to do yeah, like sure. a lightning round cool. type thing? Yeah. Okay. So I <laughs> I wrote this down because I this suddenly popped into my head. Uh, March, this time last year, um, you said that the COVID situation felt like the first 15 minutes of a zombie movie. Um, where are we now in the zombie movie? Or have we switched over into a different movie completely? I... Have gotten so impatient with the pandemic. I've been like, bring on the zombies already. Um, you know, um, there's this great scene from The Simpsons where Homer is in a sort of a peyote dream, and a turtle is supposed to lead him, leave him, lead him <laughs> to his soulmate, and Homer keeps saying to the turtle, "Turtle, move faster." Turtle, move faster when I'm kicking you. That's how I feel about the pandemic. Um, so I think we are out of the precursor of the zombie thing because it turned out, I mean, look, a lot of like 550,000 people, something like that have died. It's not a trivial thing. It's an important thing. Yeah. Trillions of dollars in value globally have been lost. People's livelihoods have been ruined and all that kind of stuff. But I'm done with it. And I think most people are just simply done with it. And it's, it's as pandemics pandemics go, it kind of fits Hannah Arendt's thing about the banality of evil because yep. it's just become dull and we've become habituated to 2000 deaths a day or whatever the number is. Um, and um, at least a little zombism would have been, you know, exciting. Right. The Ross Dowsett theory, it's even the pandemic is still decadent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a quick one, if uh, you don't mind me sure. 
Uh, Jonah, you and I were made for each other, not only because we're both Angel nerds, but because we're both Simpsons nerds. But I have to ask, do you do you still watch The Simpsons, or are you an elitist like me, and you won't go near anything that was made after 15, 25, 15 to 20 years ago or whatever? Um, I, I do not watch The Simpsons much anymore. I'm not opposed to it. It's just the way I've organized my life. And, um, you know, I, want, I used to watch a bunch of it when my daughter was young enough not to completely understand the bad jokes. And then you have to go into this sort of um, dark period where you can't watch it because she does understand it, but not can't process it. And now she can understand it and process it, and we just haven't gotten back into watching it. So I don't know... How I, I really don't have a strong opinion about whether it's good or bad anymore. I'd like to watch it more, um, but I just don't. You know, it's not a snobbish thing. Um, it's uh, just I fell out of it kind of thing. Um, on the topic of zombies, will we ever see the Jonah Goldberg, Max Brooks style zombie novel? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Ever. I want it to happen. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I'm trying to make it happen. Um, I'm curious about that. Okay, so this is the other lightning round one connected to that. If you uh, didn't have to run a startup or uh, perpetually uh, deal with pundit topics, what other unwritten books are floating around in your brain? There's the dog book with Cass Sunstein, of course. There's the Max Brooks-style zombie novel. Is there another thing knocking around somewhere? Yes, there are at least, I mean, there are a bunch of snippets and stuff, but there are two. So look, I mean, look, I've never, I don't think I've ever on this podcast, and I don't think I'm going to now, explain the brilliant Max Brooks plot conceit I have for my zombie novel, because someone else will do it, because it is is genius. Um, And David French agrees that it's genius, because I've talked to him about it. Um, which we is, know he has the best taste in these things. Might be a strike against it, but I don't think so. Um, uh, I have a time travel thing that I would very much like to do. And, mm-hmm. um, and then another sort of in, not in scope of Tolkien or Game of Thrones or, or, you know, Game of Thrones stuff, but that kind of, but, and not set in either a, fictional past or a middle earth type, you know, alternative place. But I do have a big sweeping sort of Dune esque idea yeah. for something, but I need, um, uh, I, I need the financial wherewithal to be able to, uh, do such things. And I do not have incentives that. matter. Incentives yeah. matter. Um, right. And I, when I say financial wherewithal, I'm not saying send your dollars now like soupy sales, <laughs> But, uh, or actually my dad, you know, my dad took out an ad in the, in his college newspaper at the University of Michigan saying, send your dollars now and just included a post office box. And he got like $14. It was like, oh. there was nothing in the ad that said, Ed, you'll get X. It was just send your dollars now. And he, you know, he got beer money this, in 1951. That was probably pretty good beer money. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I, I have the same problem with G files. If I talk about the idea that I have in my head, it makes it very hard to write about. So I kind of right. try to protect myself. Right. I, I have another quick one based on today's G's file, which has a musical bent to it. What was the first album you ever bought, Jonah? Is it horrifically embarrassing or are you still quite proud of it? 
That's an excellent, it's an interesting question. Part of the problem is my brother, who was only like 18 months older than me, um, I basically mooched off him a great deal. So I'm trying to think the first album I bought on my own, maybe the wall, you know, the Pink Floyd, the wall album. I mm. got that myself. Um, it was my brother wouldn't lend it to me, but I'd have to think about that. I was never like hugely into music the way most normal humans are. Um, and, uh, um, and I got most of my tastes as hand-me-downs from my brother. Like, mm-hmm. I like a lot of the British people who you want nothing but to, you know, set them afire. But, uh, <laughs> like, the, the Kinks was really into, the Who was really into, all that kind of stuff. So. And Pink Floyd for a while, uh, because what teenage boy doesn't sit on his bed thinking the world doesn't understand him. So, right. there's that. Right. All right, guys. Um, any last-minute questions? Because... Um, I have, I have more Irish whiskey to get. I guess the only, uh, the only one I can think of off the top of my head, are there any uh, bizarre things that have happened on America's roads that you've seen? Strange people. We live in a strange country. Anything bizarre? Well, I mean, everywhere I go, I'm followed by this, you know, mostly naked Indian in a loincloth, but that's true even when I'm home in DC. Um, and, uh, um, I'm trying to think, no, nothing, nothing crazy, bizarre. Um, um, except meteorologically, which is, you know, not, not all that interesting. Um, uh, I did spend about an hour and a half being grilled by my daughter about whether or not, Catholic saints are in fact basically have godly powers or are simply sort of MVPs kind of thing. And it was, it got very theological and very complicated, um, which was mm. not the conversation I expected to have. And it was made all the more tense because I was trying to finish the G file while she was driving, um, <laughs> which is why I cut myself quite a few times. Um, and, uh, but no, uh, everything, you know, we'll, we'll see. We're still going to Yosemite and um, something is in store for me for my birthday. Maybe it's, you know, a meteorite, but we'll see. Uh, but everything's, you know, a lot of, you know, as, as, as I've said a zillion times on this podcast, I'm a big believer in quantity time over quality time with your kids. And right. going on cross-country drives is definitely a source of um, quantity time. Um, right. Uh, we did go to one place in Council Bluffs before we went to Culver's, which I would argue is maybe the best fast food place in the country. Um, I mean, I like Chipotle, but anyway, this is a conversation for another day. Uh, where a method and his girlfriend got into quite a heated argument about mask wearing, which I thought was an interesting insight into public policy. Um, hmm. But, you know, uh, it was not, it was not family entertainment. Um, right. So it was that. Anyway, uh, how did Chris Darwell do on the sub as, as guest hosting? I, I thought he did quite well. It, it was, um, I, I think maybe uh, even before I was in this job, I listened to enough of the podcast that I don't quite get the vocal double thing that a lot of people do. Um, but 
uh, it apparently had that aesthetic quality to it, which uh. was very amusing to people. It was a little bit like, um, in part, in part because Darren, our, our, our gracious guest was also uh, basically in his rental car about ready to go with his wife onto their vacation, uh, for the first time in a year, it sounded like. So, uh, they, uh, they they were not in the most convenient of locations. We feel kind of bad for imposing on them, but um, I think the only the only bizarre thing is uh, if Chris is, is sort of like a Jonah double, it's sort of like Jonah at sort of like one point two times speed. The podcast uh-huh. was around forty five minutes, I think. Um, so it was sort of a condensed uh, a, a condensed Jonah on one point two times speed. Um, That's fine. Just, I mean, did he say, did he pronounce globalist correctly? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he pronounced corn pone uh, correctly. So, so that's, that's all that I don't, I don't really get an accent off of either of you, but apparently other people hear it. Um, apparently that's how you tell is he's, he's like you, if you were from West Virginia or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that, is, that's the thing is that he has an accent and I don't. So the lacuna of my accent distinguishes him from me for I speak proper American English and there are only a handful of words that give out the give away the fact that I grew up in New York city. Um, hmm. and, and phrases like I still compass that's one apparently. <laughs> uh, also I will say I waited online, not in line. Oh boy. Which is a dead giveaway for New Yorkers. Right. Um, and I will often shout, I'm walking here, but that's a whole other thing. So <laughs> anyway, uh, I want to thank you guys for doing this. And uh, thank you for any listeners who actually stayed, stuck around to indulge this self-indulgent twaddle. Um, I greatly appreciate it. And um, Guy, have you been enjoying your internship so far? Very much so, Jonah. Very much so. Thank you. For I know, I know we all. work you like a dog, but, um, you know, but I... We do appreciate your work, and and we should tell listeners that Nick's in Indiana for reasons that are too complicated to explain, and that Indiana is very flat, as you've discovered. Um, Remarkably so. So, um, and it's, the, I believe, the only state in the Union where the state capital was put there equidistant from all four borders um, simply as a political thing. It was not intended to be, it was not a city that, grew into the state capital. They said, okay, it's a political compromise. We are rational planners, children of the philosophers of the French Revolution. We shall use our reason and impose a capital on the dead geographic center of this incredibly flat state. And because the entire state geographically is so fungible, why not? Right? It wasn't like, oh, this is a place you can't put a capital because it's all flat cardboard anyway. So, sorry. Yeah, if there's anything that... It's everything. If there's one thing that I've noticed in Indiana, it's exactly that, that Hoosiers are all either Platonists or Straussians. They're sort of perfectly, yeah, logical. All right, guys. I appreciate it. I'm going to go. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for indulging with us. I will do a solo remnant as well. At least that's the plan. Um, And then hopefully next week we will figure out like guests and belts and all of these things that we associate with modernity. Um, Thank you to Guy Denton. Thank you to Nick Pompella. Thank you to Caleb Parker, who's not only a handsome man, but a powerful man. And thank you all for listening. Um, I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.